Welcome, everyone, to the AI and Business Podcast. I'm Matthew DeMello, Senior Editor here at Emerge Technology Research. Today's guest is Ramesh Dervasula, Senior Vice President of R&D Information Technology at Lilly. Ramesh joins us on the program today to discuss AI's impact on the drug targeting process, particularly in helping pharmaceutical leaders like Lilly better predict what potential drugs to invest in for bringing to market and when. With increased certainty in drug targeting, Ramesh explains how AI capabilities are driving clinical trials to be used as an alternative form of healthcare. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Ramesh, thank you so much for being with us back on the program again. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Yes. Now that we've laid the groundwork, I think, with the basics in terms of, you know, just the larger healthcare and life sciences challenges, I'd like to dive into a couple of the talking points we brought up in the last episode a little bit more deeply, especially the drug targeting process. What do you see as the biggest problems that biotech and life science leaders have in knowing which drugs to invest in and when to invest in them? There are two parts to that uh, targeting problem. There is understanding the molecular basis of the disease, and then there is identifying therapeutic agents that can address the molecular basis of the disease. And so we are leveraging AI for both of those, identifying or understanding the molecular basis of the disease, identifying the biological targets that we need to go after, and then the therapeutic agents, small molecules, antibodies, peptides, RNA, gene editing, et cetera, to go after, to identify the best way to address that disease. And AI is used in both of those in many different subtle use cases, but the amassing of information, both externally as well as internally, and then the building of models that allow us to sift through all of that data effectively and predict or even dream of new molecules that can address the disease. We're very excited by the potential of generative AI. Let me let me ask you a little bit about about dreaming, because I know this is a space or like inventing drugs that we don't see out there or don't have a basis are a little bit more, even if I can use the term like a Hail Mary for like certain problems. I'm curious about if there's edge data or at least the process. What's the ideation? What inspires, you know, like your systems at Lilly, et cetera, to go, all right, I think we have the basis here for a drug that has not a molecular combination, a compound uh, that has not been attempted before, but we have a certain certainty that it's going to bring about these results. If you can give us an idea of what that process looks like. Yeah. So the understanding the molecular basis, you know, recall in our previous podcast, we talked about Ptolemy's map of the world. And so that's where the our intention, our mission is to build a better map. Because once you build a better map, you'll figure out how to route how far the distance is between London and Lisbon or whatever it might be. So building a better map is a very, very important component of the research work that we do. Once you build a better map, then you can think about the algorithms that you use for routing and scheduling or whatever analysis you need to do on that world map. And so that's where, again, on the biological target side, we're trying to understand in a more deeper way the basis of the disease. What is the mutation? What is the epigenetic impact? What is the environmental impact that may be causing certain diseases? And then on the molecule side, we're very excited about the idea of actually leveraging generative AI and the 
potential hallucination side of generative AI to dream of new molecules that may be effective against the molecular basis of the disease. So in the previous episode, we talked about digital twins. Here, we're talking about digital twins of the disease candidates, the disease targets, the biological targets. So if we have a digital twin of the biological target, then we can treat that as a, we use a lot the analogy of a lock and key. So if you can understand the shape of the lock, then you can dream or design a key to fit the lock. Absolutely. And so a lot of what chemists do is leverage information that gives them the shape of the lock and then dream of the molecules. Do I add a benzene ring here? Should I make the chlorine a fluorine instead? Add a methyl group, whatever it might be, that makes that are chemical modifications to an idea that then fits the keyhole more sophisticatedly, more accurately, more robustly. And so chemists actually have to be very, very creative. Yeah. Medicinal chemists are very creative minds because not only are they making the molecule with their hands in the lab, they're actually dreaming of the molecule before they go and make it. And then they have to dream how to make it. And so there's a lot of creativity that goes into medicinal chemistry. And in that moment of creativity, there's actually an opportunity for generative AI to dream of molecules on their behalf and make suggestions on their behalf of which molecule to make next. And so we have examples, we have history about dreaming of trillions of potential molecules for any given biological target, and then filtering those trillions of ideas down to the dozens or hundreds or however many we choose to physically make in the lab and validate the prediction. And we have examples where there were ideas that were suggested by the generative AI algorithms that the chemists initially were very uh, doubtful of. But we convinced them to, hey, to try to make the molecule and see what happens because the learning of the algorithm for the algorithm is very important. And much to everybody's surprise, actually, the molecules were pretty good. There are some examples like that that we're learning from. Yeah, so much to unpack in this answer. Uh, Very fascinating stuff. Uh, Particularly, I want to hone in on where you said hallucinations and distinctly generative AI can dream of the solution. Now, we know this is something that AI can do generally, but we've always put this kind of like predictive power kind of in a different category of AI. We're not terribly technical show. This isn't about learning Python, but I know our audience and I see these distinctions made out in the mainstream media. I think I, I saw an article from Rolling Stone spelling out the difference between machine learning and and conventional AI for its audience fairly recently. But we've always we've always discussed kind of the predictive capacities of AI as an element of analytics. I just really want to get to the heart of of where you're saying like the generative AI, the generative AI, which which we've always kind of put in a different category, can dream of a solution there. Is is that fundamentally predictive analytics or is that or does predictive analytics kind of take the hallucination, so to speak, and make it something a little bit more concrete on the ground? What is the specific technology there? Is it still generative AI coming up with those predictions? Right. And so that's a very good point. There's actually multiple models in play at the same time. Right. There is one model of generative AI that is dreaming of molecules. There is another model, and actually it's not just one, it's actually hundreds of models that are evaluating the quality of the suggestion. And so we put in a lot of effort to build a, a generative machine that can dream lots of ideas. 
And then we put a lot of effort into, well, let's build some predictive models that will evaluate the quality of the suggestion and then reject obviously bad ideas as quickly as possible. And if there are some good ideas, then can we run a more sophisticated algorithm? And if there's a great idea, then boy, let's get down to physics-based modeling to really evaluate the quality of it so that at the end of that process, uh, the trillions of ideas are filtered down into billions of candidates that are then filtered further into millions of good ideas down to potentially just hundreds of great ideas. And it's only the great ideas that we present to the chemists. And then the chemists themselves further vote on whether or not they like the idea, whether they believe in it, whether they think there's a a fallacy in the model, whatever it might be. And then they go and physically make it in the lab and test it in an experiment. And so there's a whole array of different models that are actively working, sometimes against each other, because you want that tension of, I dreamed of an idea, and now I'm evaluating whether it's a good idea. And so that array of models that we use is what we call model-driven drug discovery. Right. And and I know from talking our, to our other friends in life sciences and healthcare, especially with the overlapping models, you know, the larger foundational models that that kind of handle like the real ideating tend not to be so much customer facing or, or really at the ground floor level. And that that tends to go to the job of smaller, more bespoke models. But having that big ecosystem, and I, I heard this in your last answer, really requires a lot of feedback from the experts. And this is where we start to see, oh, AI isn't really killing jobs. It's actually fundamentally changing them in the way that a huge skill set going forward is being able to, you know, provide better results in these feedback loops. You were telling there about how researchers were giving back answers. And I'm really interested to know how their day-to-day has changed with model development and how much of their jobs have become about providing that feedback? And does that still work in tandem with the rest of their research? Are we seeing AI tools that can simply just observe their process and get their feedback just from being able to, you know, see how they carry out their day-to-day jobs? And that's a little bit less of a direct, all right, well, I got to go plug in this, you know, comment to this to this research. You know, it's a little bit more passive. I'm wondering how the day-to-day jobs of researchers are changing with AI. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Scientists, chemists, biologists, toxicologists, et cetera, all, all forms of science, they've always been information hogs. They absorb information from everywhere. They read scientific papers, they read patents, they read journals, whatever it might be. They are always reading and learning and learning and then integrating what they read into the map that they have in their mind of the nature of science. Back to that Ptolemy world map, they're always trying to improve the map that they have in their mind so that they can design a better experiment or dream of a better molecule. And so in a way, all of this AI and all of these models, it's not supplanting them, it's actually displacing the journal part of it. So they are finding new sources of wisdom and knowledge. So they're still information hogs. They're still learning and finding different sources of knowledge, wisdom, learning, data, etc. But the chatbots and all the AI models and everything are just simply an additional part of their toolkit now to find wisdom, to seek facts and gain that understanding. But at the end of the day, it's all virtual. We still have to go into the lab, make the molecule, test the molecule, validate the value or the possibility of success of that molecule. And then of course, take it all the way into 
clinical trials. And so in this way, it's the early, early front end of drug discovery where we're, we're making a huge impact, but there's still a whole array of physical experiments, biological experiments, whatever it might be, to validate the quality of the candidate before it ever gets close to a patient. Absolutely. We don't see AI removing whole areas. We think AI is just simply new tools in the arsenal for all of these information-heavy roles, careers, and, and departments that we have. Absolutely. Absolutely. And even even where you talk about, you know, doctors and researchers really being inside the world of research and in, in, in the latest, there are even places where where that stands to be enhanced, especially where you see LLMs, generative AI models deployed to, you know, drink up all the information from the latest scientific journals. And if they can bring that back to the researchers, depending on what they're reading, provide deeper insight. I think there's even more there that that we're going to see enhanced over the next couple of years on that that note, a metaphor I hear come up, you know, all the time, especially with this generative AI moment, is that it's a little bit hard to tell the future right now because it kind of feels like 1998 in terms of the dawn of the Internet in that, you know, it, we, we were talking about hallucin hallucinations in the last episode as a good thing, which is marks the first time for this show. And and I encourage everybody to tune back to that episode for for what you were describing there, because it's really, really fascinating stuff. Actually, it was earlier in this episode. Forgive me. But yeah, really fascinating stuff. In terms of that challenge, though, it's a lot like the early internet in that, you know, back in 1998, you'd click on a website, it would take, you know, 40 seconds to load, you know, maybe the, maybe the images would still be loading and we'd go, wow, what a miracle, you know, like the, we've never had this before. By 2004, that was unacceptable. All of your neighbors had had some version of Ethernet, maybe some Wi-Fi in there, but internet connections were guaranteed. And if a website took more than five minutes, uh, five seconds to upload, there's probably probably something wrong with your internet connection. Just just given that we're kind of at a moment where everybody's getting used to new norms. I'm wondering especially with generative AI, what that future's going to look like when we start to accept its fundamental advantages that it's bringing to the table as a norm and given that increased certainty that AI capabilities can provide in the effectiveness of drug targeting, everything we've been talking about in terms of of clinical trials. What do you think that's going to mean, especially on the research side, in terms of new norms as these capabilities become more commonplace? I think it's a fascinating moment where the world is going to be changing all around us. We just can't predict it just yet. But I can uh, I can guarantee you that there will be a lot of great ideas that will not work out. There will be a lot of great business proposals and companies that will not work out. And there's going to be a whole bunch of LLMs and models that will be deployed that actually don't derive as much value as we had originally thought. And so what's really important right now, I think, are two different things. Number one, we have to experiment as quickly and widely and humbly as possible to identify the best opportunities and the most valuable examples of leveraging LLMs, GAI, whatever it might be, to take advantage of it, to derive whatever business value we're trying to generate, whether it's identifying new molecules, identifying patients, you know, talking to physicians, whatever it might be. So there's a lot of experimentation we need to do to learn where the best opportunities are available. The second part is I think the business models, the economic model of generative AI is still highly evolving and, and very unclear. We didn't understand the power of mobile phones 
1998, right? Right. And so what is, look at us now with uh, all the devices in our hands and actually the internet is in our hands. We didn't anticipate that in the days of, you know, Netscape browser and whatnot. And so in that way, the economic model and the, the, the business model of GAI has yet to reveal itself what the real uh, lasting and sustainable models are going to be. And so there will be a lot of investments that are made that won't work out. And so that's where we have to learn to experiment and then change, not commit and keep something in production forever, but really to say, we tried something, we learned what to do better, and we're going to change and reinvest and continue to invest until we converge on the sustainable, productive economic models, business models, technical models, et cetera. So there's a lot of change coming in front of us, and there's going to be a lot of hindsight in a few years about what was successful and what was a failure. Right. I almost think a lot of your answer just sounds like the dot-com bubble. But, you know, even that being 20 years ago, (laughs) even that being 20 years ago, I mean, I'm not quite seeing, I'm sure there's a huge rush. I know there's a lot of folks who are like, oh God, we got to jump on on generative AI right now. All at the same time, especially from the AI community and it being built into the real experts that know how to, you know, get these systems built at the enterprise level. They know that this is not, you know, we'll have out-of-the-box models, but that doesn't mean it's not a lifetime commitment to maintain them, et cetera, et cetera. They can be deployed overnight. There's another question of whether or not you should deploy them overnight. And I think there's just overall more caution than you really saw in the dot-com burst, even where you see Sam Altman, you know, going before Congress and and talking about the concerns of, of AI. It seems largely informed by the lack of questions we were asking, you know, at the dawn of the development of, of social media. But I'm getting a little a, a little high level. I really, really appreciated just that comparison you were drawing in your last answer. We're just about out of time. Ramesh, thank you so much for joining us today on these last two episodes. I, I've really learned a lot. Thank you so much for having me. It was a fun conversation and I look forward to continuing it further. Appreciate it. Longtime listeners may notice that we don't usually do this where we put two episodes so close together in terms of an episode one and an episode two. I lobbied for this personally here at Emerge Technology Research just because I thought so much of what Ramesh had to say in today's episode really flowed from the last episode. And to make things even easier on our regular Emerge listeners and readers, you can log on to Emerge's front page today. That's Emerge.com. And you'll notice the article from last week is actually a synopsis of that episode. And you can find a very handy link right at the top of the article to tune into that first episode. For those of you already logged into Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can check out the episode it aired originally on September 19th. It's titled AI Solutions for R&D Challenges in Life Sciences. On behalf of Daniel and the entire team here at Emerge, thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next time on the AI in Business podcast.